Welcome back to the Hemingway List Podcast. The podcast where we do things excellently, talking about Book 12, Chapter 16. The Reader's New Account has asked a question. Project for next year, question mark? So that's a good question to start asking in October. Since we're already in October, I was wondering what we're planning for next year. View poll. So what's on the poll? Uh, <laughs> there's three questions on the poll. War and Peace in 2022. I'm done with book projects or something else. So I can answer that. Um, this subreddit, A Year of War and Peace, will read War and Peace again. That's what the subreddit does. Uh, this is the, I think this is the fourth year in a row or third year. I'm pretty sure this is the fourth year. That's what this subreddit does. On January 1st, it starts reading War and Peace, and it goes through to the end of the year. Usually, in December, we see a bit of an upsurgence in new readers who have heard about the project and want to start it in January. So you might even see a few thousand more people join. Last year, I think the subreddit count doubled to its previous spot of... Now it's about 7,000 readers. So the year before, there was only 3,000 or 4,000, I think... And so it tends to do that. It tends to surge up. So this podcast, a year of... Uh, sorry, not this podcast. The subreddit, A Year of War and Peace, will just read War and Peace again. What will happen also is spin-off projects. So the Hemingway list, which is this podcast, which is currently reading um, War and Peace, <clears throat> will go back... To the Hemingway list. If you don't know what the Hemingway list is, uh, Hemingway list is a list of books that Ernest Hemingway recommended readers, no, sorry, writers should read. If you want to be a great writer, these are the books that he reckons he prescribed. Um, now, there were, I think there's like 17 books or something on the list, and we're reading our way through it. Now, one of the books on the list is War and Peace. So we read War and Peace in collaboration with the A Year of War and Peace subreddit. But there's a whole other subreddit called The Hemingway List. And so we will be returning to the list. And as Swim said, the Mama Fishy says, I'm kind of hoping that the read will go back to The Hemingway List. Yeah, it will. At least my part of it. War and Peace is on the list, so Ander detoured the list through this subreddit. Correct. There are around four books left on the Hemingway list, I believe. Those of us who have read War and Peace have been waiting patiently. Oh, man. You've been waiting a whole year to get back to the list. Well, I'm going to actually type a reply. I'm coming home soon. That's all all right. <clears throat> anyway, there will be spin-offs. There will be another round of people reading War and Peace. There's a Les Miserables, a Year of Les Miserables subreddit, which does Les Mis. There's a bunch of other ones. Um, there'll be heaps to do daily readings. So, stick around. Anyway, let's talk about the actual Book 12, Chapter 16, the last chapter of Book 12. Is this what you thought might happen to Andre in the end? Tolstoy dedicated quite a lot of space to this chapter, whereas he sometimes drops significant events quite brutally with only a sentence. Why do you think he chose to dedicate so much space to Andre? Excuse me. <clears throat> and finally, what was your favourite line in the chapter? 
don't know if I really noticed a favorite line. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, good question. I wonder if it was expected. You know, we did so many fake-outs with <laughs> Andre's death, and now he's really dead. Um, the real Bobcat23 says this, I'm not crying, you're crying. Andre was my favorite character, and now I just don't know what to do with myself. I also feel bad for Pierre. During his imprisonment, he's now lost three people close to him and doesn't even know. Wow. Ouch. Who's the three? Let me see. It's obviously Andre and Helena. I feel like I'm missing something. Who's the third one? It's probably really obvious. Um, Kara Kikar says, Damn, ending the book on this scene feels like closing a closing curtain. I felt it. I think Andre is a main character, which is why his death gets so much attention. Having read some other works by Tolstoy, he seems to see quite a lot of import in the way we die. I'm going through all this just as much as part of the story of Andre's life. Personally, my favourite part was Natasha knitting while sitting her silent vigil. That felt banal and real, like it is lifted from a scene in his own experience. You know, that, yeah, that felt very real, the bit about knitting um, and the clicking being soothing, the clicking of the needles. I think the bit, the line maybe that I liked the most, and not because it was pleasant, but the final moment that Andre shares with his son is so uh, empty, you know? He does it because he knows they want him to do it, not because he feels some connection to the son. And he even looks across at Maya during it. And it's not a look of, like, connection. It's a look of, like, is that it? Is that all I have to do? Is that good? Because he kind of just wants to get it over with. Um, I'm sure he was feeling feelings, but I don't know. Brutal. Brutal for the kid, you know? Just never had a connection with his dad, even on the deathbed. And I was kept seeing it through the kid's point of view, where the dad would just be this kind of stern, old, scary character. And I, th I just feel like the kid would have only ever known Andre as that, as a, as a kind of a distant dad, you know? So that was kind of... I don't know, stirring. Uh, a lot of comments on this one, on today's chapter. Mississippi Reader says, I think it was a very worthy and appropriate ending for a character such as Andre. Anticlimactic, I guess. You know, he just peters out, but... Um, very real. Alright, so now we're up to book... Th uh, what are we up to? Uh, uh, 13. Which is entitled... <coughs> um... 1812 and chapter one goes like this man's mind cannot grasp the events sorry cannot grasp the causes of events in their completeness but the desire to find those causes <clears throat> is implanted in a man's soul and without considering the multiplicity and complexity of the conditions one any one of which taken separately may seem to be the cause he snatches at the first approximation to a cause that seems to him intelligible and says, this is the cause. In historical events, <clears throat> where the actions of men are the subject of observation, the first and most primitive approximation to present, present itself was the will of the gods, and after that the will of those who stood in the most prominent position, the heroes of history. 
but we need only penetrate to the essence of any historic event which lies in the activity of the general mass of men who take part in it, to be convinced that the will of the historic hero does not control the actions of the mass, but it in its but is itself continually controlled. It may seem to be a matter of indifference where, whether we understand the meaning of historical events this way or that, yet there is the same difference between a man who says that the people of the West moved on the East because Napoleon wished it, and a man who says that this happened because it had to happen. As there is between those who declare that the Earth was stationary and that the planets moved around it, and those who admitted that they did not know what upheld the Earth, but knew there were laws directing its movement and that of other planets. <coughs> there is and can be no cause of a historic historical event except the one causes of all the one cause of all causes. But there are laws directing events, and some of these laws are known to us while we are conscious of others we cannot comprehend. The discovery of these laws is only possible when we have quite abandoned the attempt to find the cause in the will of some one man, just as the discovery of the laws of the motion of the planets was possible only when men abandoned the conception of the fixity of Earth. The historians consider that the next, next to the Battle of Borodino and the occupation of Moscow by the enemy and its destruction by fire, the most important episode of the War of 1812 was the moment of the Russian army. The movement of the Russian army from the Ryazana to the Kaluga Road and to the Turatino camp, the so-called flank march across the Krasnaya Pakra River. They ascribe the glory of that achievement of genius to different men and dispute as to whom the honour is due. Even foreign historians, including the French, acknowledge the genius of the Russian commanders when they speak of that flank march, but it is hard to understand why military writers, and, f and following them others, consider this flank march to be the profound conception of some one man who saved Russia and destroyed Napoleon. In the first place, it is hard to understand where the profundity of, and genius of this mo movement lay, for not much mental effort was needed to see that the best position for an army when it is not being attacked is where there are most provisions. And even a dull boy of 13 could have guessed that the best position for an army after its retreat from Moscow in 1812 was on the Kaluga Road. So, it is impossible to understand by what re reasoning the historians reached the conclusion that this manoeuvre was a profound one. And it is even more difficult to understand just why they think that this manoeuvre was calculated to save Russia and destroy the French. For this flank march, had it been preceded, accompanied, or followed by other circumstances, might have proved ruinous to the Russians and solitary for the French. If the position of the Russian army really began to improve from the time of that march, it does not at all follow that the march was the cause of it. That flank march might not only have failed to give any advantage to the Russian army, but might, in other circumstances, have led to its destruction. What would have happened had Moscow not burned down, if Murat had not lost sight of the Russians, if Napoleon had not remained inactive, if the Russian army at Krasnaya Pakra had given battle as Benningsen and Barclay advised, what would have happened had the French attacked the Russians while they were marching beyond the Pakra? What would have happened if, on approaching Tarotino, Napoleon had attacked the Russians with but a tenth of the energy he had shown when he attacked them at Smolensk? 
what would have happened had the French moved on Petersburg. In any of these eventualities, the flank march that brought salvation might have proved disastrous. The third and most incomprehensible thing is that people studying history deliberately avoid seeing that this flank march cannot be attributed to any one man, that no one ever foresaw it, and that in reality, like the retreat from Philly, it did not suggest itself to anyone in its entirety, but resulted moment by moment, step by step, event by event, from an endless number of most diverse circumstances, and was only seen in its entirety when it had been accomplished and belonged to the past. At the council at Philly, the prevailing thought in the minds of the Russian commanders was the one naturally suggesting itself, namely, a direct retreat by the Nizhny Road. In proof of this, there is the fact that the majority of the council voted for such a retreat, and above all, there is the well-known conversation after the council between the commander-in-chief and Lanskoy, who was in charge of the commissariat department. Lanskoy informed the commander-in-chief that the army supplies were, for the most part, stored along the Oka in the Tula and Ryazan provinces, and that if they retreated on Nizhny, the army would be separated from its supplies by the broad river Oka, which cannot be crossed early in winter. This was the first indication of the necessity of deviating from what had previously seemed the most natural course, a direct retreat on Nizhny Novgorod. The army turned more to the south along the Ryzen Road and nearer to its supplies. Subsequently, the inactivity of the French, who even lost sight of the Russian army, concern for the safety of the arsenal of Tula, <clears throat> and especially the advantages of drawing nearer to its supplies, caused the army to turn still further south to the Tula Road. Having crossed over by a forced march to the Tula Road beyond the Pakra, the Russian commanders intended to remain at Poldolsk and had no thought of the Turatino position, but innumerable circumstances and the reappearance of French troops who had for a time lost touch with the Russians and projects of giving battle, and above all, the abundance of provisions in Kaluga province, obliged our army to turn still more to the south and to cross from the Tula to the Kaluga road and go to Tarantino, which was between the roads along which those supplies lay, just as it is impossible to say when it was decided to abandon Moscow, so it is impossible to say precisely when or by whom it was decided to move to Turatino. Only when the army had got there, as a result of innumerable and varying forces, did people begin to assure themselves that they had desired this movement and long ago foreseen its result. Alright, there we go, that's the chapter. A little bit of history talk get used to it i'm just going to periodically remind you guys we are closing in on the prologues wait is that what it's called epilogues the epilogues and that chapter just now is like reminds me of what the epilogues are like and then there's like literally like two weeks of chapters like that in a row so just a fair warning that's coming up and it's the worst bit of the book, in my opinion. Anyway, thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.